Hello and welcome back to Commodity Conversations by the team at Mercado, the podcast where we keep you up to date with the latest trends, drivers and moves in livestock, grain and oilseed and fibre markets. My name is Olivia Agar. Thanks for listening into episode 257. We have Michael Whitehead joining us today, Head of Food, Beverage and Agribusiness Insights at ANZ. As always with Michael, it's a great discussion and pretty varied covering harvest and the impact of international factors on the grain market, discussion on how El Nino has impacted or not impacted our markets, retail to sale yard price spreads, the evolution of the wool market and whether the sugar market is influencing inflation. So a very well-rounded episode to leave with you for a bit of a break that we'll be taking for the next couple of weeks. Before we get into the episode though, here are some highlights from the market this week. Yardings have surged as producers try and take advantage of the rising market, along with the Christmas closures ahead. Cattle prices took a turn lower on the back of a jump in supply. Mutton also felt some pressure this week, but lamb prices continued to rally much to our delight. Trade lamb prices in the east are back up to levels that were last seen in May, and in WA there was a 33 cent price drop this week after a good rally since October 2. The last wool sale of the year saw strong bidding across the board as exporters really tucked into a large offering. This pushed the market to levels not seen since June and July and really encouraged sellers to accept the stronger prices as well, which resulted in a very low passing rate of 5.3%. That's it from me today. Thanks to all our listeners for supporting and sharing the podcast this year. From the whole Mercado team, we hope you have a great Christmas and a very successful 2024. Here's the episode with Robert Herman and Michael Whitehead. Michael, welcome back to Commodity Conversations. And as usual, we love talking to you when the um, the latest ANZ Commodity Insights comes out. Another good publication. Well done to you and your team. But I was reading it and I was thinking, Michael, especially after reading the intro from Mark Bennett, where Mark says uh, 2023 seems to have been something of a roller coaster in Australian agri. And for all the ups and downs, I wonder which is in front. Michael, do you ever wonder or are you ever thankful that being with ANZ, a very auspicious financial institution in Australia, that you're actually in agriculture where things are a bit interesting and you're not stuck in interest rates or currency? Does that ever cross your mind? Rob, what a great question. Good morning to you and everybody on the Mercado team. Um, Everybody should be in a job that they find interesting, but uh, as I'm sure you and the team would agree, Uh, All of us are in agriculture who are in agriculture love it because A, it keeps people fed and clothed and what more could you ask for? Um, But B, it never stops being fascinating and it never stops being unpredictable. And look, with respect to my terrific colleagues in economics who look at interest rates and FX um, and a whole range of issues there, that is fascinating, that is vital. And, And for us, Look, we have the same unpredictabilities, and no doubt we'll talk about it, whether it is the rainfall, which is the biggest one of all, um, whether it is what global partners are doing. It's intriguing. Our last year was intriguing, and 2024, dare I say, is going to be even more fascinating. So Mark poses the question, and I might uh, mention that Mark is head of agribusiness for ANZ, so um, we take a lot of notice of his questions. He poses the questions... For all the ups and downs in 2023, I wonder which one is in front. Well, it, it, it really is an interesting one. And 
I suppose there's a bigger thing happening in the background here. And I think we should probably flesh this issue out as we go into, as I'm sure we will, talking about beef and sheep and grains and all the other things. And that is that the whole structure of Australian ag is changing and evolving so quickly that the variables which impact us now do so in a very different way than they did 10 or 20 years ago. And by that, I mean, if it rains less or more, because agriculture has changed and evolved and arguably got better, there are less farmers, but bigger farms. Farmers are learning and evolving strategically so well that we adapt so well to things. We have short memories in one way, but in another way, we look back at what we've done in the past and how to make it work better. So which has come out better this year was your, your question. Um, I could, I could be like a really uh, cliche football coach at a press conference after a game and say that uh, the whole of agriculture has come out better or that everybody won today. But I think what's happening at the moment is a, across all industries is a sign that this industry is just getting more and more sophisticated and better at looking after itself every year. I think um, it's it's impossible to talk about markets now as you just said without talking about the weather because it does have such an impact let's just break it down a little bit through the the key commodities that you cover in your report um starting with grain well that's because that's the first one that you've covered there um this harvest um and and this season really we started off pretty well i suppose we went we we missed out a little bit in the winter but we never worried too much about that and then a little bit in the spring and perhaps not enough and now for those trying to harvest still some weather challenges. Um, is that still the big story, Michael? It's definitely one of the big stories. And it really is going to be interesting. Here we sit recording this in sort of early December or so. And we know that for a lot of people who harvested, starting from up north, they got their harvest in. That's where it always starts in Queensland, works its way down northern New South Wales, uh, sort of starts in the, the northern WA grain regions as well. Uh, a lot of them have got their harvest off, and so the rain didn't impact them that much. And to a degree, and every farm is different, uh, the the drier periods didn't impact them as much as has been feared. Uh, but as we say, as we sit here now, a lot of headers that would have been coming out now are sitting in the shed for days and weeks longer. Um, and the result of the rain is yet to be seen. It will obviously depend on how much warm weather comes after this, what that does to the crop, how heavy the rain has been in some uh, areas and whether that's knocked the crop over, what impact that has. A lot of farmers will not know the impact until they are sitting on the header and looking at that computer screen, which is showing them what the yields are as they're going around. Mm. So if we have this conversation in February, then we'll have a lot more answers. Yeah, I think um, I, I, I picked up another point out of your report, and, and that was in relation to the Ukraine-Russia conflict. And we know that area is a significant supplier of grain to the world. When that first came about, that was putting upward pressure. That problem was putting upward pressure on the market. So it was supporting our prices um, through their misfortune, if you like. But that's not the case now. They've sort of got their, the, the grain flows are flowing. And now you're saying there's some downward pressure, Michael. Um, Rob, the key word that you used just then was market. And we have to ask ourselves, what is the market um, and how much does the market drive grain prices? 
And once again, look back over grain, for example, even over 25 years, back to about 2000 or particularly to about 2006, when Ukraine and Russia happened, the market that influenced things was, to a degree, the clever traders in places like Chicago, particularly in Geneva and Rotterdam and others, who saw that there would be panic about the amount of grain going up and then got in and whether they were shorting or buying futures as well, uh, getting to be part of that short-term panic they knew would be there. And prices went up. And this always happens if you look back to when Russia previously went into Ukraine. If you look back at some of the spikes of 2008, 2010, they are spikes, market surges, but it's always short term because the market always steps back after a little while and says, hang on, the world's probably not going to run out of grain. There's probably enough in other regions and it goes down again. So we saw that happen. We saw the market take a breath. We saw the traders do what they did. We saw governments react and get in and buy quickly as much as they needed, uh, particularly the big importers, the Egyptians, the Indonesians, uh, the Turks and others. And then that panic go out. What's happening now, as you say, is that Russia is looking at a record crop. Uh, Ukraine looking at a reasonably good crop. Recent weeks have seen those forecasts go down a bit. Uh, and so, so much of that panic has gone down. But the one other big thing, if you were to look at a chart of grain prices, and it's a cliche, we probably are seeing a new normal in that the uncertainty will remain. Yes, there's ample grain, but yes, there's still the worry that something may happen. So we probably won't go back to the lower normal levels we saw in the past. So keeping on our weather focus, I suppose, I'm, I'm very interested in your cattle report because, and I'm quite, I'm looking now at your, your uh, chart on page seven, where you look at Eno, uh, El Nino declaration timeframes, and the impact that had on the Eastern Young Cattle Market Indicator. And when I'm looking at that chart, there's not much to be gleaned out of that because the El Nino doesn't always signify a downturn in the markets. However, in 2023, as soon as we started talking about El Nino, if you look at the charts, even before it was announced, the market really came off the boil. What's, the, what's your take on that, Michael? Um, Rob, El Nino is fascinating, obviously, across ag, and we did uh, charts like this for every commodity and right through fresh produce and everything um, to see where the impacts are and, more importantly, where they aren't. Um, they obviously are in grain at times because the dry means, if, if it comes, and El Nino, importantly, does not necessarily mean a dry. If it comes, grain production goes down. But what does it mean for cattle and why the reduction when the declaration was here? I'm going to be controversial and great to be controversial on a podcast that you could say in a way that the cattle fall was a good sign, that the industry had said this time, if it's going to be dry, we are not going to be caught short. We are not going to have the same headlines that we've seen in the past where cattle farmers run out of feed, cattle farmers run out of water, uh, cattle farmers flood the market trying to offload all their stock. We are going to prepare in advance. And that's what they did. And, and you and I have talked about this in the past. Look at what they could offload and get ready. It wasn't perfect. Arguably, it went too far, but who was to know what the perfect reaction would be? Uh, so the industry prepared for this. And now, as we sit and as we watch cattle prices start to go up, and they've gone up over 50% in the last month or so from a very low base, 
the industry is saying, yes, we prepared, things didn't turn out as we expected, and now we're going to prepare for 2024 by restocking again. Yes, it's really interesting because in your forecasting, you're also saying that we're expecting Australian exports to be up 15%. In fact, right now, exports to the US are just off the planet almost, aren't they? They're booming. They they absolutely are. Um, we'd like to thank the Americans for, first of all, the sheer amount of hamburgers they continue to eat. Um, and those hamburgers taking so many of our cattle. And even if tighter economic times hit the Americans, then they'll eat more hamburgers and they will need more of our meat. Um, they've developed a taste for our steaks. Uh, the Americans have for years had a patriotism about their finer meat. Uh, that they would import their manufacturing beef but eat their own for steak. But now they, like uh, so many other countries, have discovered how good ours are. And it's this really big point, and those in the cattle industry are well aware of this. The American cattle cycle is a big and lumbering but very important beast. And right now, being around that 60-year low for cattle, the Americans have way less meat domestically than they are used to. And what do we represent? And I feel in a way that it's a cliche we've been saying for over a decade, so I'm reluctant to use it. The whole clean green thing. Australian meat, touch wood, uh, is seen as safer from a food safety side, safer from a, safer from a reliability side, safer as a trade partner, and that's why they're leaning upon us. And as we have to talk about, that's just the Americans. The Japanese continue to eat more. The Koreans were, I think, the only big client or the big export partner which continued to eat more meat per capita through economic downturns. And China remains there as a huge importer too. Well, well done to the Koreans. I just want to, you mentioned the US though, because you talked about how the demand from the US is going to be positive um, going forward and, um, you know, making those hamburgers. And they are, I might add, Michael, they are always very good servings of hamburgers. They're none of these little patsy hamburgers. But one of the things we've been watching for some time and I guess waiting for with to see what happens is, and you mentioned about the low herd, that rebuild will start. What impact will that have on, on markets in general and on our prices? Well, as, as we know, a rebuild in this country takes a while, and we saw that as those prices surged post the drought, and, and that took a couple of years. As the Americans rebuild and as they keep their female cattle away from the markets to, to really get their domestic herds up again, that means uh, arguably a year or two of a good positive outlook for Australian exports as the Americans continue to need our beef. Now, there'll be competition there. Uh, they've changed some of the regulations for Brazilian imports, although those did hit quota into the US. Uh, so that was good news for us as well. They'll continue to look at Canadian imports uh, to a degree and others. But as far as, as we say, uh, the good, reliable, safe beef, that will be on Australia. And if you talk to any of the big meat processors at the moment with those record exports, they have no trouble at all selling the meat that they are producing. Yes, it's, uh, it's an interesting dynamic, isn't it? Um, today I'm talking to Michael Whitehead and we're talking about the, Michael's latest, I should say you and your team's latest release of your Ag Commodity Insights. We we think it's a really definitive report each time and, and well done to the team. Let's switch to the little animals, the sheep industry, the sheep market. Um, 
high supply is still impacting on the market, isn't it? Uh, it is, but uh, to a degree, we knew that. So, so two parts of the high supply, the short-term one and the long-term one. We all know that every year on the short-term one, there is going to be that spring surge. There is, to a degree, a relatively predictable cycle uh, of where prices will go as everybody sells off their older lambs at the end of the season before the newer ones come onto the market. Um, but what's going what was the longer term impact here? And we talked about the cattle rebuild arguably going a little bit too far, but still being a good sign. Uh, and it was the same with the sheep industry to a degree, as you could argue, perhaps that uh, the industry rebuilt a bit too much when the rains came after the last drought. And perhaps some of the other factors changed a bit. Maybe the Chinese took their foot off the import pedal a little bit after importing so much sheep meat at the time as their pig herd went down. Uh, but now they are definitely back in the market. Farmers are correcting, Australian uh, sheep farmers are correcting as well. So we appear to have got out of a lot of that market correction. Still not perfect going forward, but, but things really are looking a lot better going into 2024 than they did through a lot of 2023. Well, you also note in your report, Michael, that export volumes are very strong. They've lifted in line with this supply, haven't they? Uh, they absolutely have. And once again, this goes back to a long-term trend. And there are cliches in ag, perhaps that some of us in ag forever get too used to, as we say, but remain important. And one of them is that long-term protein demand. And this is actually really uh, possibly more important than we give it credit for. And I see in the weekend global media this being talked about again. Uh, to a degree, in a number of Asian countries, there is a growing protein concern that too many of the population are continuing to eat rice particularly and, and grains and not getting enough protein. Underlying that is their gradually growing income and their taste for meat and their need for meat. And what Australian sheep delivers to so many of these countries and the Middle East and even to the Americans as well is a well-priced, good source of protein, tasty, able to be eaten in lots of ways, uh, so that demand will absolutely continue. And, and also, what is our competition in the global sheep meat market? Uh, yes, there is domestic production. And there are a lot of countries that produce an awful lot of sheep and an awful lot of goat domestically. But there are still a lot who need meat from us and the Kiwis and really not that many others. So that is a good long-term story for this industry. Now, I know you love talking about the, uh, the difficult topics, Michael. And this is one that's that's front and centre, not just in agricultural um, discussions, but also in the mainstream media, the sale yard to retail price spread. I mean, we I think your chart in your report shows that we are now at record levels in that spread. What can you tell us about that? Uh, Rob, that is absolutely one of my favourite discussions, uh, being, being a country person living in the city, uh, because one hears on a lot of metropolitan media, how can it be justified that you can have cattle in a sale yard at 4 or $5 a kilo equivalent um, and coming off a supermarket shelf at 50 And when I hear that, I think to myself, maybe you're underestimating the supermarket shelf. I see Wagyu in my local uh, uh, shopping centres for over $100 a kilo. And the answer is that it's a, not a great comparison to make. 
every point of a transaction along a meat supply chain is a different and complex issue. Um, if there is a sale in a cattle yard, as we all know, it's a range of things. Supply into the market, what the processes need, uh, what the breed is out there, what the cattle condition are. That is entirely different from when you are in a supermarket and a consumer is deciding between the cut how much they'll spend, how much of a premium, uh, the economic psychology, if beef is that certain price, but it feels more exclusive, and then all the costs through the supply chain. We, uh, we don't have this hypothetical supply chain when a cattle goes uh, somehow mythically straight from a cattle yard onto a shelf with nothing happening in the middle and so many things happening in between. So, so there are so many moving parts in there. Um, as the processors say, nobody feels sorry for them, well, ever, and they're the first ones to say that, but nobody feels sorry for them when prices are high and they're not making a margin. But when prices are lower in the sale yards and they are making more of a margin, perhaps that's the time when they get the capital to upgrade the processing capacity, make it more efficient and benefit the whole supply chain. I suppose overall, and, and you talk about that chart in our paper, it could be argued to a degree, and you would see this too at Mercado, that there is a reasonably standard margin um, at all times from the the cow in the or the steer in the in the cattle yards to what appears on the supermarket shelves. Who is getting more or less of that margin shifts at times, um, but it evens out eventually. So speaking about margins, I want to talk about wool for a minute, Michael. And we both come from an area that uh, we know, well, we, we both grew up in Hamilton where we used to, they used to say we rode on the sheep's back, but I don't think that's the case anymore. In I'll just give you these two statistics. In 2018, 2019, the Eastern Market Indicator averaged 944 cents. This year, it's, according to your numbers, a 33% lower. And in US dollar terms, the market between those two periods is 36% lower. Is the world losing interest in war? Um, how can that be when we've got uh, King Charles telling us that it's the great wonder fibre and will save, uh, you know, save all our pollution problems? What's going on there? Uh, Rob, you've taken that, that period of time over the short years. Oh, good heavens, if we took it back to the 1950s, it'd be so much more dramatic uh, when it was hard to find any clothing in the world that wasn't made out of wool. Is the world losing interest in wool? A great controversial uh, quote, and I'll be controversial again and say no. It isn't. There is still a market for wool, but the market is evolving. Um, cotton products are out there, and cotton is currently a lot cheaper on world markets. Uh, and for so many manufacturers and for so many retailers and others, that's a decision they have to make. Um, artificial fibres, they continue to evolve as well. Um, they aren't the great plastic, plasticky things that set on fire that we were uh, clothed in when we were children. That continues to to increase as an alternative. There is and there will always be a market for wool, for suits, for fine clothing, uh, for blends, for so many other products. And, and the wool industry continues to do some great work there, but it's changing. And, and I suppose what we see from Australian farmers is that they change with that. We've seen the big shift into the meat side of things being uh, far more important for sheep producers than wool. We've seen a shift slightly back again at times. 
and the levers will continue to move and the, the good producers and those who think long-term and balance their risk will continue to move with that. So we'll, we'll always have a place. It's just changing. Well, I we love looking at um, slightly left field of markets, um, Michael, and, we, and you've got a pretty good analysis about sugar. And we don't pretend we know much about it, but I was interested to hear that, you know, your price outlook is taking into account the fact that the supply surplus is likely to fall. Um, food inflation is a big discussion these days. Is that sugar is impacting on that? And is it likely to have much impact in the future if it does fall? Well, look, sugar is a really interesting one. Australia and particularly people not in sugar regions may not realise we are one of the world's biggest producers and one of the world's biggest exporters. Uh, and this is a well huge and good news for those people in the sugar regions of mostly Queensland and, and to a tiny degree New South Wales as well. Uh, when you look at sugar prices, it depends on what the big three are doing. That's Brazil, that's Thailand, and that's India. Uh, to start with Thailand and India, they've had bad weather, um, and that means they have less sugar, and India worries that they will export too much of it, so they put export restrictions on, and bang, prices go up. Brazil, on the other hand, has said that uh, they make a lot of biofuels out of theirs, and because oil prices go up, that means they put more of their own sugar into making alternatives to oil, ethanol, and less into food markets. Less sugar around, prices go up. As far as you ask an impact on food inflation, with global sugar prices being high, and sugar being a base ingredient in so many foods and an unavoidable base ingredient in so many foods. And let's remember, sugar is a natural product as distinct from some of the sugar alternatives. Yes, to a degree, it will have an impact on food inflation. If its price stays high as an ingredient, uh, it uh, is inevitable, but it's not going to be a huge impact. And by far, other things such as wages, rents, energy costs and others will have a bigger increase. Uh, but yes, um, it will mean that things like uh, your chocolates particularly and other high sugar ingredient uh, products do go up. Well, it's probably a very good point. A nice sweet point to end on, Michael. I want to thank you again, but also I want to congratulate you and your team on the Commodity Insights report. Um, it's very easy to find. ANZ Commodity Insights. Just go, just just have a look on the internet or Google it. Um, congratulations, well done, Michael. Thank you very much for your time, and um, and have a great Christmas break. And, and Rob, thank you. And I have to say to you and the whole Mercado team, I know it's a bit of uh, cross-congratulations, but uh, we all always read uh, everything Mercado puts out. So congratulations to you all on another great year. Thanks, Michael. Cheers.